Welcome to the Twin Geek Cast with Calvin and David. This week we're looking at Stanley Kubrick's 1975 masterpiece, Barry Lyndon. Movies and friendship. Those are mysteries. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. All right, welcome back this week. How you doing, Calvin? Doing great. We have an exciting show here for you today. Uh, plenty of stuff to talk about. Yeah, certainly. We're going to get to our highlighted film of the week, Barry Lyndon, in just a moment. But first off, as usual, we're going to talk about the box office this week. And uh, unfortunately, there's not too much of note here. It's like exactly the same, just a little bit moved <laughs> around from the previous week. So we're going to like kind of blaze through this one real quick and then highlight some other films that are just below the top 10 here that really need some love hopefully we'll see them on the charts next week if enough people go see it it's worth saying that almost nothing is moved position so we're just going to do a lightning round here yeah no very quick most of the things like the top six are all in the exact same place so (laughs) all right so let's start from the bottom and just go real quick uh widows is at number 10 now widows great film we have a review up on a 9 out of 10 review on the site i loved it yeah, that was great. So, number nine is Possession of Hannah Grace, down two spots. Uh, yeah, it looks like a cheaply made horror movie. I'm going to miss it. So. Yeah, it, it'll be out soon, I bet. Or yeah. out of the top ten. Uh, Robin Hood, number eight, exact same spot as last week. It looks incredibly cynical. <laughs> I don't think uh, I have any interest in going to see Robin Hood right now. No, probably not. Maybe not even when it comes to Vaughn. No. Uh, at number seven is Green Book, moved up three places. Which I like. It's It's heartwarming and i'm i'm kind of i'm not surprised by the internet's reaction though i feel like three white men writing a black man's story obviously the internet's going to tear it apart yeah so but if you liked it you know it might be worth seeing still yeah it's fine all right and like i said six from here on up it's all the same as last week <laughs> six is instant family oh my god i'm so tired of this <laughs> yep uh, speaking of tired of this five is bohemian <laughs> rhapsody which i think part of the thing that's interesting is that we got we kind of got a middle ground of a Queen movie because the Queen band wanted a, didn't want Sacha Baron Cohen's vision because they wanted it to keep going after Freddie Mercury died, which would have been an awful movie. So I feel like what we got is like a studio compromise, and I think the public love it, but that's because they love Queen. They have great songs, whatever. Yep. Yeah, certainly. Number four, we have Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. And I still haven't found out if there are Fantastic Beasts fans out there, so I assume there aren't. Mm-hmm. Come forth if you are. Uh, at number three, we have Creed 2. There are definitely Creed fans out there. I'm a huge fan of the original Creed, and this one's a bit punchier. No, well, some pun intended. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, God, that's horrible. Um, and the Dragos are made into sympathetic characters. Um, it's a pretty good sequel. It just uh, it doesn't have Ryan Coogler writing. Stallone isn't as good of a writer. Mm-hmm. At number two, we have Dr. Seuss's The Grinch from Illumination. Uh, I don't think this will leave us the entire month. I mean, we're near Christmas already, What? where I have like 14 days left, so it, it we're pretty close. Uh, it's just going to stay in there. You Is this seriously two it. weeks to Christmas? Damn, i got to do some more shopping. I know. I'm giving myself <laughs> existential dread just thinking about it. Yeah, all right. And then, of course, number one at the box office is still the Disney giant Ralph Breaks the Internet. So I've done a little bit more research on it and i'm finding out more about like the practical reasons why it's fallen apart that uh 
you know, Disney had like the Toys to Life like Infinity set, right? That mm-hmm. you, you might not know about it. It was such a it was such a. Bomb. It was like a video game yeah. thing. Yeah, where yeah. they where they're going to sell all their franchises at, as toys, like the uh, Skylanders do. Um, but that bombed. So this whole movie, the whole point was they were going to go into like a Disneyland that was Disney Infinity, but then it did so badly they just turned it into a Disney website and. So I feel like that corporate mandate must have come through when they were like, oh, our game isn't as valuable as these other properties. So I feel like it was a last-minute decision and kind of like a ham-fisted corporate uh, ideal that uh, that kind of drives the whole film. Uh, not very happy with it. So what you're saying is that the conception of the film was even more cynical than we originally thought. Yeah, I feel like it It was at least diverted from its original goals. Is what I'm. That's That's what I'm theorizing. I don't have it confirmed, but I'm theorizing that there was a better vision for this at some point where they went into the internet and explored online games, but then Disney's online game and their Toys to Life game didn't work out, so that's just my theory. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully we'll see it out of the box office soon, but I sincerely doubt it. These <laughs> animated films, they really stick around. They stay forever. <laughs> so, yeah. Unlikely. In the meantime... Uh, I guess... Since- uh, I guess we wanted to highlight a couple of the other uh, successes through the week since it's been so stagnant. Yeah, there's a couple other um, notable things going on in the box office this week that either haven't got much attention lately or won't get much attention based on the kind of film they are. Mm-hmm. And that sounds way more interesting than just <laughs> repeating the same bullshit about the box office again. Yeah, right. So let's go there. Yeah. We got at least uh, three films here we want to talk about. So at number 12, just barely not in the top 10 here is the favorite and i don't just pretty i don't know if i start my campaign now for this to be our film of the year or if i I do it in a month here but man (laughs) i i can't believe that uh i can't believe what came out of this guy that he he did like killing a sacred deer and then then this uh, what's his name yorgos lanenthos (laughs) or something right i wasn't gonna risk it but (laughs) yorgos i know i got that right we could have jesse yell it for us later if we're wrong but uh, <laughs> Yorgos Lanthimos, uh, yeah, he made a Killing of the Sacred Deer, and what was it, Dog? Um, Dog Dog Tooth was yeah. his first film, and then the other big one. I think the the bigger hit from him was the lobster. The lobster, which has a lot of connectedness. They even eat some lobster in this, where where you realize that there must have been like civil servants. I have this idea that it's in the same universe, and that some servants were made into animals. But uh, that's that's a theory I want to say for a, another article at some point. Um, mm-hmm. I just can't believe he got to work with all this talent coming off stuff like the lobster. Like, who would have ever predicted that he'd be working with like, um, you know, uh, who was it? Um, Olivia Coleman, Rachel Wise, and uh, Emma Stone all at once. My yeah, God, I see Nicholas Holtz also in the film. Yeah. He's pretty notable. Yeah, he's he's fucking hilarious in it too. I <laughs> I love the favorite, and it has so much in common with Barry Lyndon that I feel like highlighting. It, uh, there's a good point to put a. Put a bit of a note on it. I wish that all three actresses could win like the same award. You know, I wish they could mm-hmm. have like a try award at the Oscars because they all deserve it. Yes, this definitely seems like a, a big ticket for the month here. It's going to be an Oscar t- for contender for sure. God. I think what's also really notable is that twelve is pretty high placement for a film like this, but also because it only it's playing in ninety one theaters right now. Yeah. So it's really crazy that it's getting this much attention. I'm I'm genuinely surprised, especially because he's kind of 
period films, these kind of offbeat things, they usually don't do well with audiences. No, and this one's interesting because it has the historical accuracy, but then it's even kind of a move up on like a Death of Stalin, I think, in that it has a better dark comedy that's a lot funnier, more dramatic. It's also really sexy. I think it has so much erotic energy going through it that uh, like between three women, it's just a... Oh man, it couldn't have been made any other time than now, and it it feels like the film of the moment. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a really interesting pick, I think, uh, for sure. I'll be excited to go see it. I don't typically go out and see a whole lot of films, but I might just have to. Yeah. For this one, I'm Please hearing do. a lot, and like you said, uh, you said it uh, ties a lot in with kind of our featured film, Beard Linden. It has that kind of very same setting and ideas going on, and even some of the removed shots, like the. Obje- objectivity when they're out there like in the field like shooting quails or whatever uh or whatever the uh, doves then it feels like they're shots right out of barry linden uh, a lot of the same principles and painter aesthetics but uh it's also clear that yorgos loves like fish islands or his uh, cinematographer does so he has some different tricks up his sleeve mm-hmm. so this is definitely the the highlight of this week as far as for films go not much else, like it was in the box office, but yeah. we'll move on to a couple other interesting things of note here. Uh, one of the other big ones that's kind of slamming in the box office, a little bit lower down, is the um, re-release of uh, Schindler's List, sitting at number 14 here. Which is doing great, considering all things, considering it's the busiest season of the year, and it's a re-release. And it's a four-hour movie. <laughs> yeah, there's that. another common thing with Barry Lyndon. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna go see it tomorrow, so maybe if I maybe if I'm moved, I'll do something with it. But I'm sure I'll be it's, moved somehow. Right. It's been a long time since I've seen Shin's List, and I mean, I'm not gonna go out to a theater to go watch it, yeah. in, you know, <laughs> for for that long by any means, especially since I own a copy of it somewhere. But and I it mean, is. A, I should note it's also on Netflix right now, so you don't have to go it, out. That's interesting, but I mean, what's important about it as well is that this is the. What is it? I believe the 35th anniversary of Schindler's List. Well, I've never right? seen it projected. No, 25. Either. Damn it. Not 35. Yeah, yeah. My math's off. <laughs> is it? Okay. You yeah, said- yeah. So I've never seen it projected either. So I want to go see it in Dolby. And, you know, I think that'll be a nice experience. Mm-hmm. Do we know? It's. I mean, I'm guessing for sure it's a digital projection of it. It's not like a print. I doubt any theaters would have prints of it to show. Yeah, I doubt it. That w- that would be really nice though. If you can, whenever you can, go see some like a thirty-five print of something. Oh yeah, definitely do it. It's worth the experience. I think we both endorse that. Anytime you're, anytime you have that option, it's always more interesting. Yeah, no, I I definitely so I've seen twice this year films on, uh, you know, prints like that. What do you see? And other side. Of- yeah, I saw the other side of the wind earlier, and we talked about that on an earlier podcast. I saw that right when it came out because I had that very fortunate privilege of it being nearby and you know the special guest with uh the editor there but i also earlier in this year at the same theater i went and saw the night of the hunter it on a 35 millimeter print that must have been something oh absolutely because the, the look of it is fantastic you know it's a beautifully shot film and having it on the film like that is you know it elevates it even more it was incredible mm-hmm. to watch it in a theater but this is entirely off topic <laughs> yeah, yeah what else did we have we have one more no, one more one more we want to talk about we want to talk about it at 17 here is at eternity's gate and this is the latest interpretation of the vincent van gogh character played by willem dafoe here mm-hmm. and i haven't i hadn't really heard of this until we got started today so 
Yeah, and it's kind of going under the radar, but I want to talk about it at least a little bit because this is the exact kind of film that we're going to see popping up around awards time. This is, you know, Willem Dafoe really going for that Oscar this time, you know, the one he's been denied so much. And Van Gogh films, typically, they kind of have that pattern of applying for it. Um, You know, one of my more personal favorite ones that I've seen... um, for the Van Gogh style is uh, Lust for Life oh. from 1956. And that uh, netted Kurt Russell, or not Kurt, fuck. <laughs> Kirk Douglas. Right. We'll cut that. Kirk Douglas, he um, got a nomination for that in 1957. And, you know, fittingly enough, it's, you know, he just, probably a lot of people don't realize that Kirk Douglas is actually still alive. Mm-hmm. He just had his 102nd <laughs> birthday, wow. like, this week. Outliving all of us. Yeah, no, he's kicking around, and I... Won't be surprised if he keeps going for a while. Absolutely. But that's... I mean, there's no word. There's no reason to indicate that he won't, but it'll be very sad when he does. Yeah. Um, I think mine would be uh, Loving Vincent, last year's... Uh, in the first film shot entirely with oil paintings. Uh, that was very compelling to me, just to have a more artisanal style to it that uh, kind of spoke to me and moved me, but I didn't feel like the content of the film actually matched the styles. So. Uh, I still love it. I I still have it on physical, but I just uh, I expected a lot more, and and it's still worth the watch. So check that one out too. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see this again. I think it's also just interesting in general how kind of obsessed we are with Van Gogh as this character because yeah. he was such an absolutely ignored and unappreciated artist in his time. Yeah. And here we are. We we sing his praises endlessly in you know today's culture. And I think that brings us to a film that's also been underappreciated in its time. Yeah, and I guess that's as good a transition as any for uh, Barry Lyndon, yeah. our featured film of the week. We both watched it again this week, and I think we came to similar uh, similar conclusions with it. Yeah, essentially that this is an unassailable masterpiece. Yeah, <laughs> and maybe I found more saleable points, but where are you at with it? I absolutely love Barry Lyndon. You know, Kubrick's films are not always easy to kind of get behind. Some of them are a little uh, dejected, but... Mm-hmm. This time, and and even the previous time, this is only the second time I've seen Barry Lyndon, but both times I really loved them. But this time I was like, I fully understand this picture, and yeah. I'm 100% on board. It's one of my favorite Kubricks, definitely now for sure. You know, just probably not quite as much as, say, like Dr. Strangelove. And it's hard. I feel like there's a lot going on here, but it's also a very long film. I think we talked about it. It took me all day yesterday to get through the film. Yeah, so that was one thing that kept me from watching the film for a long time. I'm like, oh man, it's a three-hour costume period <laughs> drama by Stanley Kubrick. This is going to be hard to sit through. Yeah, and surprisingly, it's it's not. I mean, like I get why you didn't get it all in one sitting because you know hectic life and three hours is not easy to do. You got to chop it up somewhat. Yeah. But 
I, I could easily just sit down and watch this film at any time if I have three hours. Well, that's my next plan for it. I feel like it deserves your time so much that, uh, you know, I wanted to get it in for this podcast, of course, but I feel like there's... Uh, I'm so hooked in when I'm starting to watch that film. There's, uh, I didn't even notice the performances, I'd say, the first time because the aesthetic and the direction is so impressive that it, it kind of overwhelmed me the first time. Well, I think one of the interesting things as well, which makes the performances easy to dismiss or ignore, is that the film is intentionally trying to distance you from the characters. You know, shots are framed very specifically to keep you out of the intimacy of them. There's very little close-ups throughout the film. And the narration is a huge component of trying to inform you of things as opposed to letting you interpret it from characters and you know oftentimes the narration will break through and it will ruin the suspense of whatever is building up i mean it's very amusing and unique that way right it's entirely intentional Mm -hmm. like kubrick doesn't want you invested in the characters intentionally so he wants you to view this as this kind of objective thing it's meant as a more uh kind of dry humor approach i think i've seen a lot of reviews and whatnot i think in particular you were showing me one from uh pauline kale oh, yeah. <laughs> who 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 found the characters just these you know either utterly contemptible or boring like i've seen people like entirely trash ryan o'neill's performance right. for being for being like really lame or whatever but the issue is that they're entirely missing the point. Is that that's yeah. entirely the idea here? It's supposed to be humorous that these these characters are oafish and dumb and kind of oh. just going through things. And Paul and Kill said it was coffee table Kubrick that it was for showing off and that he wasn't very fond of having fun. But I have the opposite impression the second time that this is a this is a movie full of ironies that it's very funny in a darkly comic way that a. It's not, um, you know, I laughed a lot the first half there, you know, second half it kind of becomes bloodless and kind of becomes the film that she's describing, but the first half, I had a lot of fun with it again. Well, what's interesting is that the film is, in fact, decidedly split into two parts, not just by the fact of the intermission, but there are cue cards that indicate this is the first part and this is the second part. The first part is all about Barry's kind of rise to prominence as this, um, you know, character he... He becomes Barry Lyndon by that the end of that first uh, part there. And the second is all about more so the conflict with him and the young uh, Lord Bullington and how that plays out and his, his lack of purpose and place in the society there. Even those parts, well, we should say it was, you know, derived from the Thackeray novel and these, like, parts are taken from the text. Like, they even have their own sense of humor, like, part one, by what means... Redmond Barry acquired the style and title of Barry Lyndon. It's, uh, you know, it's not, it's so formalized and it's such a parody of formalization that uh, it it looks like a painting, but it's also a still life of actors kind of giving um, subdued performances. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in going back to the comedy as well, again, the first half is certainly more humorous than the second half is because mm. it got a lot more of the dramatic aspects in the second half leading up to the conclusion. But I think a lot of, like you said, I, I wanted to highlight uh, some of the better ironies in the first half, as you mentioned. Mm. One of my favorite, of course, being like this kind of humorous aspect that Barry, um, <laughs> like, like oh, the whole kind of 
issue with in the beginning of the film is that he ends up fighting one of the soldiers because you know who's ought to to marry his cousin yeah and he has to and he has to leave to you know you know uh, because of that embarrassment or whatever you know so he doesn't get in trouble for quote unquote murdering him and his way to avoid that is by joining the army yeah right and then from there again it just it gets even more humorous because then he's like well i don't like the army everything kind of sucks here the one friend i kind of had died how the hell do i get out of this so he fakes his way as a general he has a bump in with the prussian army and the prussians is like bitch you ain't even part of the army you ain't a general right and they're like well you can either get killed or join our army well that's the great irony of barry is that he He's an opportunist, but he kind of favors his way into less favorable positions as he goes. Like, I mean, he has the falling out with the British Army after losing his cousin, after, you know, killing the guy, and then nothing really amounted to what he needed it to, right? Like, there's an element of fate to his life that everything's pre-decided for Barry. It, it sort of seems that way, which is, from what I understand, very much contrasting the original book Whereas Barry is much more so of an active opportunist. Mm-hmm. He's a con man. He kind of schemes his way. Whereas in this, uh, whereas in the film, what Kubrick does, he seems to indicate that Barry is much more of a kind of seizing it within the moment. Like he kind of sees things and he goes for it within there. And I think uh, Ryan O'Neill really perfectly captures that. You know, his, he's much more of a comedic actor typically. Mm-hmm. And I'd seen a couple other of his films kind of leading up to Barry Lyndon the week before, uh, stuff with Peter Bogdanovich, like um, Paper Moon and Paper What's Up Doc. Good, yeah. Yeah, and he gives, you know, great comedic performances in both of those, but here it's a much more kind of reserved, but still very comedic, um, you know, character that he's playing in Barry. And Paper Moon also about cons, right? So it's kind of interesting, a little bit of cross-section there. Right. I mean, in Paper Moon, he's obviously much more of an active con man, right. like about as, as much of a con man as you can get. That's another one we definitely recommend. Uh, you know, Paper Moon's pretty great. Let's come back to that someday. But, yes, definitely. Um, <laughs> absolutely. I I really, no, I like him here. I didn't think I did the first time I watched it, but I was kind of endeared to him the second time. Because, uh, you know, all of life's tragedies that I thought he was such an opportunist. It, it's really actually fate that... Um, you know, uh, there's a little bit of determinism in there that Barry Lyndon was always going to live this way. It's uh, the opening shot of his of his father getting shot. The narrator mm-hmm. tells us it's not over very anything very important. So we understand that Barry's going to live that same life and you know die for nothing. Right. Well, I think that's an interesting aspect of um, it as well with uh, Ryan O'Neill being there in the comedic uh, kind of central performance because. It would have to be, like, that's the only way to be endeared to him is if you have someone like Ryan O'Neill, because Barry, as he's written, is an unlikable character. He is an active, uh, you know, kind of, like, almost not, not an antagonist. I don't know what the word is off the top of my head. Yeah, well, the thing, the thing about the original novel was it was supposed to be the first novel without a hero, right? So Barry Lyndon was supposed to be a con, and there was no hero in the book, but... Uh, the way Kubrick, that's, that's the word. Yeah, the way Kubrick's adapted it, he's not even a villain, right? Like he's not totally an anti-hero, but he's not a hero. He's not a good guy. I mean, especially by the second half, you're like this guy is a jerk, right? Yeah, I mean, he goes in, you know, the gal's uh, the gal's husband's away fighting the war, and he goes in and sleeps with her, and 
the narrator's like, oh, she's been besieged by many men. You know, it, it's everyone around him is kind of a bad person anyway. Yeah, I mean, even when you get to the more sympathetic aspects of Lord Bullington and what he's dealing with <laughs> Jesus. in the second half of the film, like, he's still an entitled prick. Yeah. But, and that's the thing is that, you know, these are all very human characters, and I think... You know, a lot of people dismiss that. Like, a lot of people will see a character who has flaws or there's no easily identifiable, quote-unquote, good guy. And they're like, man, this film sucks. And it's like, no, <laughs> this film is great. Yeah, it's objectively good, at least. I, I can't see any, you know, I can't see a huge downside on it. Once it gets to, like, Lord Bullington, I started thinking about the repetition of Barry's cycle. That, you know, he's whipping this boy and... He's going to turn out to be the same as Barry. He might have better means right now, but he's not going to be able to keep his family together. He's going to find the same fate. He's lost his father. It's all just a repetition of Barry's same cycle and the same sense of fate and determinism. I think uh, one other obvious big aspect we have to talk about with the film as well is uh, we should talk about the more technical merits of it. Absolutely. Specifically, this, the cinematography. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot to say. It, everything looks like a painting in it. There's Every shot is framed in an interesting way. Absolutely uh, beautifully, and we'll at least pick out one beautiful one to use as, like, the poster picture for this podcast. But, I mean, that was Kubrick's intent when he set out to make the film. He wanted to emulate the kind of, you know, um, what is it, uh, 17th century, 16th, or 18th century oil paintings that were kind of made at the time, these very vast, you know, encompassing pictures where everyone's kind of posed in these interesting ways. The shots are all framed, you know, very methodically. And to that end, he had to find the new technology. He went through NASA to get the uh, different kind of f-stop cameras that would be able to shoot in low light so he could get the kind of painterly lighting aesthetic he needed. Yeah, like he had to actually request from NASA this very special lens that they had already built. Uh, I want to go ahead and take the opportunity as well to say that, you know, NASA had already built these. You know, the the fact that he cooperated with NASA has led to some uh, stoking of the conspiracy <laughs> fires yeah. of, of all the, the moon landing bullshit. Well, that's literally the same lens they used to shoot the dark side of the moon when they were framing that, so... There's a little bit of like, oh, why would he go for that one when he, you know, nobody else has ever used this in the history of film. There were only 10 made, so it's mm -hmm. interesting. There's a lot of uh, very interesting camera work, I think, in the film in general. Like, the framing is so conscious, and I, th I think it's interesting how the same kind of shots can be used to convey different things. And uh, specifically this time, I noticed there were a lot of zoom shots in the film some of the best zooms i've ever seen yeah they're not dollies they're specifically zooms yeah there's especially is it very early on there's some really interesting zooms in there that's the thing is that there's a lot of zooms in the first like fourth of the film yeah and, and kind of in the middle section they stop happening for a while but then at the end again they start showing up and yeah, I think it's that's interesting, very interesting because they have to imply a lot of different movement. The way they were shooting the film, if people would move too quickly, it would blur out. So the specialized lenses they used kind of permitted that they had like a restraint that kind of informs an aesthetic and gives the film a, a personality that's all its own. I think what's really interesting about the zooms is most of the time what they're doing is they're conveying Barry's kind of loneliness yeah, or emptiness, do. you know, nothing going on. There's one of the very final ones. It's a really beautiful one. It's like right after 
he um, has like that huge fight with Bullington. Like he beats the hell out of him. Yeah. And he's he's out there sitting like he's kind of leaned on a bridge just thinking. And it's zoom and it's really close on him. It starts up very close, but it's slowly just zooming out further and further and further. And it's just it becomes this gigantic, you know, uh, image. And you can just see how small he's become in the frame. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of shots like that happen all throughout the beginning as well. Especially, like, you can, you know, Cooper uses that a lot to inform of Barry's displacement in the world. And there are so few close-ups. You know it means something every time that they pull away or pull in. Right, and I think that lack of close-ups is specifically intended to uh, kind of separate the audience emotionally from the film. Mm. So it has that comedic edge. I actually had had this quote about it that I had found. So, it's not entirely... Yeah, I don't entirely agree with it because there's obviously some instances, but uh, Charlie Chaplin once said that life is tragedy when seen in a close-up, but a comedy in the long shot. And I think that's very true in some aspects. Like, obviously, there's some long shots, like we said, you know, where you can see how the the isolation, the loneliness comes through. But then there are some instances where it's very comedic. I think about the first duel that they have in the film. Yeah. You know, where it shoots. And it plays out in a, a wine shot entirely. Yeah, it does. And it's and it's funny. It's funny how it goes off. It's not like, you know, this big dramatic moment. Like, if you played that in a kind of Leone-style close-up, <laughs> it would be very dramatic. Right. But because it's played from such a long shot, it's just like it's kind of quick to... Like, they just go off and then one guy falls over. It's funny. Yeah, it doesn't mean anything personal at that point because it's shot at a distance. It keeps objectivity from the viewer. I mean, the only fight that's really that close up is uh, the one where they're kind of squared in with the army, right? The fist Right, where where they're they're, they're brawling. Yeah, Yeah. that's the one duel kind of scene that is actually, you know, relatively close enough to feel that you're a part of the scene. Right, and, it, and that's not even necessarily to communicate any kind of emotional things there. That's just how you would shoot the fight to feel the impacts of the punches, where Barry just beats the crap out of this giant guy, yeah. which is great. That was just like a, a, he's seen Raging Bull, and now he needs to shoot it this way. Well, Raging Bull came out after. I'll just cut this from the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are the other duels? There's uh, uh, The, the There's ending actually- duel always leaves such a huge impact on me. That's uh, it's such a very played out sequence. Like it's so long <laughs> yeah. to get through that duel. I remember like, like and the first time I watched it, like commenting with the with the guy I was watching with it, I was just like, "This is never going to end." And we were both like laughing hysterically by the end because it's mm-hmm. just so long. Right, but I think it has a lot of it has a lot of purpose with it. Like you, you feel that emotional weight more. So like I love the moment where you can see how nervous Bullington is about it, and he goes and he throws up in the corner. Like, he obviously is not capable of going through this. Like I think that's the interesting thing, because you see that as well in the first duel, is that these duels are not... Like, these, these guys don't... There's no nobility in these duels, no. per se. They're doing it more so out of an obligation of the, the system. These guys don't actually want to risk shooting each other, because that's insane. Yeah, that's one of the changes from the novel, where, you know, in the ending, he would just end up in jail, imprisoned as an alcoholic, but in the, in the uh, film... He's changed to where, you know, there's this giant shootout, but unlike every other drawn-out movie shootout, he only loses a leg. He doesn't get, you know, he's only maimed, but but we know the end for him anyway. Mm-hmm, which is a humorous thing. I think that's yeah. another 
The other interesting thing about that that sequence where they have the duel is the fact that Barry just kind of gives out like I, I guess that's an interesting point to go back for a second is that um, Bullington's gun misfires and they're like oh well I mean that counts that's how it goes and that's it's such a kind of like heartbreaking moment that you know and Barry actually shows a bit of humanity there by not shooting him when he had the chance and then Bullington turns around and is like well I'm going to shoot you anyway. Yeah, I had a hard time with it at first because it kind of rejected the, you know, I thought he was an opportunist. And then that scene reminded me that maybe he had some kind of moral value or he wanted something for Bullington outside that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think at that point in the film, what the idea is, is that Barry has become, he's finally reached where he wants to be mm-hmm. in the world. He He's in with the aristocrats. He's enjoying this lavish life and he doesn't want to give that up. And certainly I think, you know, having Bullington, I mean, Bullington is sort of an obstacle to get there, but he's very much part of it. I think, you know, he's become accustomed to to the boy. And at some point that's just about keeping up images. Like, it's not even about the boy or himself, but he's trying to stay in with the aristocrats and trying to stay, you know, everything he's accomplished coming from, like, a you know, his small Irish upbringing. Right, I mean, Lady Linden probably wouldn't be too happy if, you know, he had killed their kid. (laughs) Yeah, there was no real good uh, solution for him. Him losing his legs about the best outcome he could hope for. Oh, I guess that reminds me as well. uh, Barry's actual kid in the film, you know, that's a very tragic moment as well when he loses him. Yeah, that's, uh, that's one of the emotionally subjective parts where, you know, you might... You might actually cry in a film so detached. Mm-hmm. Like, because you still feel that. Like, that's the thing, is that Kubrick knows when to play things comedically, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of detach you, but he also knows how to very effectively communicate, you know, the, the real tragedy that's still happening within this very almost farcical story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess another technical aspect I want to focus on for the film is the soundtrack. It's not actually a score, it's a soundtrack, which Kubrick has used uh, this kind of classical music before in many, many of his films. I mean, when it starts fading in, you you might immediately think Clockwork Orange. It, it has some Vivaldi and some Mozart in it. Uh, it's It has some interesting, impactful uses of of music with a, with a new context put into them. Hmm. Well, I think this is just such an interesting aspect of... Kubrick's uh, filmography is that there are so many instances where he takes, you know, real music that's already composed, classical, and implements it in a way that you would never guess that it wasn't written for the film. I mean, the most iconic piece of it is obviously the famous music from uh, 2001. And, you know, that's the only thing you associate with that music is 2001. But, I mean, it wasn't written for the film. Kubrick... He's found ways to imply new context. Like, you look at Singing in the Rain, and it's like, oh, God, that was not the intention there. No, but it's one of, you know, you so iconically associate it just as much with Clockwork Orange as you do with Gene Kelly. Yeah. And the same thing with the rest of Clockwork Orange soundtrack, all that Beethoven. All you can think of is the, you know, uh, the various times where he's exposed to it throughout the film. Yeah, it's interesting because it talks about you know that that film kind of shows something about the contrast of beauty and violence and how films or uh, i mean uh, how great classical music could become associated with violence and then Barry Lyndon's also about this dissociation of uh of beauty and royalty with violence in another sense but more uh, 
more painterly than musicals. But I think the score is really fantastic throughout the film. It's very beautiful. I said score again. Look at that. That's that's how great it is, is that I don't ever guess throughout the film that each piece was not written specifically for that moment in the film. It's rather incredible just how uh, perfect it works together. It all works together. You would never notice. Yeah, Kubrick's an expert at that, and he always finds the right context for the right song. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very underrated aspect of Kubrick's uh, directorial prowess, and you know certainly something to highlight more so, and especially within this film. I think you know I, I just found it so notable how much more enjoyable and uh, how much it helped the pacing as well of the film was the the choice of soundtrack. I guess we should look at some of Kubrick's other work in relation to this too. Um... A lot of the shooting does feel like 2001. Uh, did you get that impression? Uh, a bit of it, I suppose. It's been a long time since I've seen 2001 as well. Mm. I'll have to revisit that, hopefully when that uh, 4K copy comes out oh, yeah. this month. Um, but, yeah. I feel like it's shot like 2001, and then narratively it has the same arcs as uh, Clockwork Orange. Mm-hmm. I definitely get a lot of the same... Uh, I suppose the sort of same sense of uh, Clockwork Orange, but this is also... It's got a lot more of the dry kind of humor as Dr. Strangelove does. Mm-hmm. Just not nearly as uh, on the nose, I suppose. Implied dark humor throughout. And, you know, like uh, Alex DeLarge's narrative arc is about the same as Barry Lyndon's either way. That he, um, you know, the repetitions of his abuse and his duels and his confrontation and falling out of a of his ideals versus societies and kind of like trying to find rehabilitation and refusing it. It kind of has the same narrative arcs. I think one of the other things, um, cinematography-wise, that's uh, notable to talk about in the film and Kubrick in general, uh, you kind of forget about this in Barry Lyndon because it happened so much earlier on, but Kubrick is really masterful at shooting uh, war and battle sequences. You know, he did a great job with all of the very large groups working Spartacus, you know, even though he's not a big fan of that one. And... Uh, Paths of Glory especially as well has some very great uh, war stuff and Barry Lyndon's no exception. There's some very large-scale battle sequence shots in the film. Some of them are very funny. I I love the part where there's the, you know, like the British formality of they still have to keep in line and run as a group despite, you know, despite getting mowed down and, you know, Barry just like drops back with his friend and he's like, oh, this guy fell and it's kind of like a irony of escaping the war there. Right, and that's another one of those those kind of uh, dejected moments that you find the humor in there, is that this is a ridiculous thing. It's very much so kind of a black humor, like, you know, well, they're just going to keep marching no matter how much they keep getting right. blown away, because that's practice of the time. That sort of ties back in with the, the dueling mentality and how it's something they have to go through with no matter how stupid or ridiculous it is. And I think that's, I think that's Barry, too, that he just... You know, he marches into these situations anyway. I mean, that's all the characters in the film. They're all going to get mowed down eventually. And, like, the ending states, they're all the same now. I think it's it's just this interesting, like, this existential acceptance of things that they have to go through. Right. Just because that's what it is. Like, another good example of that, I guess, is when Barry is first leaving town and he gets robbed by the people he kind of made friends with on the way out. Mm-hmm. And and they're all very nice about it while they're doing so. Yeah. And he and he's just like asking, he's like, Can I, you know, request that you at least leave me my horse? And he's like, Ah, oh, no, sorry, lad. I mean, I like you a lot, but we can't because we got to run away faster than you. You know how it is, right? I mean, you 
you know you have a familiarity with those characters now but they're they're hilarious because they don't do exactly what you think they would they're they're still very royal and mm-hmm. yeah the whole approach of it is all it's all very civil like it's all cruelty in a civil context which is a you know hilarious kind of juxtaposition in a very dry kind of way but berries is not like he just he just sneaks up on the gay couple and just steals their horse it doesn't you know he's not always mm-hmm. civil about everything yeah that's very much so a nice uh, interesting moment as well you get that kind of interesting idea going on there like just a very small hint of the the homosexual tones going on you see it for a moment and then barry's like well i'll take this opportunity i'll take his coat of stuff and i'll go forward and he kind of just brushes through for a while that's you know like one of the quick moments showcasing barry's kind of quick wit yeah i think he i think he has such wit as a character kubrick would say that that was the he'd go on to say that was one of the scenes that he uh, kind of extrapolated from the book because the context was too big to build into a film there's a lot of that within the film where it feels like they're um kind of bridging a lot of gaps that just can't be translated fully into a film it's already three hours long and there's a lot that's not in there right it's a very long film but i think it's you know it's jam-packed with a lot still especially a lot of yeah you know there's a lot of ideas of the themes there there's a lot of the the social kind of clashing going on it's a very important aspect once you reach that halfway point you see barry actually starting the to climb the the social ladder a little bit more with his interactions with the uh you know as he sent as a spy to go with on i can't remember the guy's name though they got the the eye patch you know yeah. where he becomes friends with him and you first start seeing him kind of climb to prominence through him yeah, I mean, you start to see him reflected within the other characters, too. One of the other interesting aspects to talk about, uh, you know, it's a lot of bouncing back between talking about the characters of the film and the technical aspects, because they're both very fantastic in the way they're done. But um, we've yet to talk about one of the more famous things of the film, which is the fact that a lot of it is lit with natural lighting, but very specifically a lot of the indoor stuff with all uh, just lit by candles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It has an interesting effect that way. It wasn't very common at that point. You couldn't shoot at night, certainly. I mean, without those cameras that he utilized, it would be nearly impossible. Right, and I think that's a very interesting and very Kubrickian choice to go for that all-natural lighting with candles. And they had to make very special candles with, like, uh, very thick wicks. And you could see how much smaller the candles actually are in the film than usual candles are because they burn so much faster with those those giant wicks. Yeah. I mean, he goes around a lot of conventional ideas to be able to, um, you know, to be able to shoot a special film that still looks like a painting. It doesn't have any unnatural elements. It still has all the elements of a classical uh, composition. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, because it's very much so composed that way and meant to kind of uh, look like, you know, classical paintings and very much so that kind of time, it gives this, the film a very timeless sense because it's so firmly rooted in that idea. Like, you couldn't, can't tell if the film was made in the 70s or 60s or whenever, you know, any other decade in particular. It's very, uh, it stands out from its own time. Which kind of contrasts with a lot of uh, Kubrick. I mean, you could tell when 2001 was made, right? Right. 2001 is very much a film of its time, not only in how it looks, but also thematically, you know, kind of what it uh, is getting at. As well as uh, something like Lolita, which came out 
uh, in like 62, I believe. And that's very interesting because it was like his one that, uh, you know, wasn't going to take off in its time. It wasn't really noticed or uh, maybe that's because it doesn't have very much commentary on the time it's from. So it was such a huge production, you know, it's storied, it's, it took over 300 days of shooting, like, there's an epic scale to everything within Barry Lyndon. Right, and a production like that, you know, typically nobody's very happy when a film goes on for like that, you said what, 300 days? <laughs> over 300 days of shooting, almost a full year yeah. of shooting. That's, that's very insane, but also very, you know, Kubrick. <laughs> and it looks like, that was over the course of two years, they spent over 300 days, so... Kubrick had like these personal obsessions with his projects. They, you know, they linger forever. He couldn't just make a small movie. Right. I remember uh, reading a quote somewhere like Ryan O'Neill thought that the film was a very different film when they shot it from when it actually came out because of all the time Kubrick spent editing it. And um, I think it's very interesting that um, how much goes on with that. And I think a lot of that as well comes down to the the narration i think the narration is not something we've highlighted enough here and how it very much changes the film from what and it would be the otherwise. way the the way the book was done you everything was from barry linden's perspective but he was an unreliable narrator and here we have a you know we have a narrator that kind of spoils the movie as it goes so it's kind of an interesting contrast between what happens in the book and the film here Right, what the narrator does is that he makes it a much more objective perspective. Uh, the narration is done by Michael Horden, who has a fantastic voice for this. It's very soothing to listen to, for one thing. As well as, like I said, what we've said so far is that by not only informing the audience of everything going on and kind of even uh, predicting things, giving information away early, which usually would be kind of bad narration qualities is it's all very intentionally meant to kind of take you out of the emotional sense of what's going on to make it more as an observational film yeah and it 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 does have that objective removal i felt that in some ways i still don't connect with a lot of the characters because it doesn't really need me to um it's right you're not supposed to right i feel like the detachment is by design Mm -hmm. it absolutely is you know the they want you to see Barry not as someone that you're going to align with or empathize with because then you wouldn't have the, the comedic sense of things as much. You wouldn't have the objective a viewpoint of seeing how these things are playing out and the pointlessness of it all. There's, there's a lot of that going on, this uh, kind of nihilistic sense throughout the film. Then I've always screwed this up, but I was watching Karan's... Uh, uh, uh E2 Mama Tambien. Uh, but I was watching that the other day, and the narrator kept coming in, and he'd, he'd stop on a character. He would tell you about their lives and what would go wrong. Like, he'd give you a description of their eventual death, and it reminded me so much of Barry Lyndon. Uh, that's a mm-hmm. cool one to check out if you haven't seen it. Yeah, I think narration's a very tricky thing with films, because generally narrations if you look at them kind of the the ones that most of the time you get they're very lazy narrations narrations that typically tell you everything inform you of what the character's thinking you know all the time it's all very bad screenwriting because it's not utilizing the medium it's like it's it's not allowing the characters to actually act it's not depending on your actors and your directors to properly do their jobs so so yeah, narrations uh, typically used as kind of a quick fix. We're like, oh shit! I mean, how does the audience supposed to know what they feel like? Well, let's just tell them. Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's like, used 
partially because the bo- books are too large for film, and uh, often they need to bridge the gap between what's in and not in a film. So, I mean, uh, that's kind of what the use is here. Like when the guy's just choking at the end of the first part, it just comes in and says, oh, he died, like while he's choking. You don't even get mm-hmm. the acting resolution. And again, it's intentionally so because it's you, you're not supposed to empathize with that. It's supposed to be humorous by taking you away from that. But that's the thing as well is that um, most of the time you'll find kind of bad narration is done because someone's adapting a book. And books can only be told through narration, whether it be first person or an objective narr- uh, perspective or whichever it is. It's all literally just telling you what's happening because that's what a book is. Books, the evil of storytelling. Yeah, but there's there's ways to get around it. There's proper ways to do narration, you know, and even first-person narrations, which there are many great ones to kind of get you in the minds of characters, but you don't want characters to explicitly just state how they're feeling. You don't even want them to just say, you know, like, what's going on or why am I... Like, like it should never be, like, their literal thoughts. Yeah. It should be their, their, their feelings kind of communicated in a more interesting sense one of my favorites uh done one of my favorite films just ever uh and especially in terms of narration i love noir films that do a lot of great first person narration like that but sunset boulevard some of the best narration ever it's all written very cleverly very interestingly uh it's interesting because uh kubrick's used it before there's some in clockwork orange that's also pretty interesting mm-hmm. clockwork orange also definitely has a lot of interesting narration and very well written narration as well and in the same kind of vein as say like uh, american psycho does a lot of the same kind of thing with narration where it lets you into this mind of this uh psychopath so to speak right there's a yeah there's a lot of ways you could go with narration that that aren't so bookish and i I feel like this doesn't even feel like it's such a, a a bookish film. I feel like it gets away from it and makes it... That's one thing about Kubrick. He takes books and makes them into legit movies. Like, Clockwork Orange doesn't have literary constraints. Or, like, a, or what was the other one? Um, The other Kubrick one we were talking about? Or? Yeah, the other one he adapted. Uh, L- uh, Lolita was one he adapted. Lolita also, yeah. Lolita and this one, they, they, you know, they're a lot different from what the novel would be. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think if there's a. I mean, obviously, he did The Shining as well. That's another, that's the one I was trying to think of. Yeah, like okay, he, I was he goes say, yeah. completely different from what the book was, and you know, that's upsetting to maybe Stephen King, but you know, like an interesting author, like you know, like Anthony Burgess might find some life in that. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I'm actually trying to think if there's any uh, particular. Well, at least great films from Kubrick that he hasn't adapted in some way, because so here, let's see here. The Killing is was based on a novel. Yeah, it was. Can't help. It was Paths of Glory. Yep, Paths of Glory is a novel. Spartacus might be the only one that wasn't, but he was also more or less a director for hire there. Oh no, it was there was a novel for Spartacus. Okay. Um, yep. Essentially, everything Kubrick's done has been a novel in one form or another. I don't know. Two thousand one was that was that novel? Two thousand one is definitely a novel. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, but anyway, yes, uh, on this viewing, I found the narration to be one of the most crucial and best parts of Barry Lyndon for me, because I could see how important it was to, uh, tonally to make the film what it is, to make it comedic, to make it, uh, lighthearted, and to communicate the kind of, uh, purposelessness of it all. Yeah, I feel like it gives it some kind of nihilistic tone. 
especially when it's starting out with the death of his father and and the <laughs> and the narrator saying oh it doesn't matter he, you know he got shot for nothing it's mm-hmm. he ruins like the the actionable mon- moments which i find frustrating but also also it's a perfect film it, i mean it couldn't have been done differently Right, it's very intentionally frustrating. Every death in the film has is entirely kind of very emotionally detached. You're not supposed to feel much when these characters die because that's kind of how it is. And that's how it is for the story specifically here is that, you know, people will come in through in Barry's life, and they will die and it will mean a lot. And that's why I thought like it was all that's why I got this feeling about it being so cyclical that Barry was just following the path that was already defined, and so are all these other character deaths. You know, they might have had small choices, but you know, their free will doesn't, you know, doesn't make a real mark against their determined fate. Hmm. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else very important we have to go over in the film. I'm certain with a three-hour film, we're missing some very crucial things. I'm positive we're missing something. Yeah, that's that's going to be, you know, just bound to happen here. Uh, you know, I, I think what's another tough thing just with Barry Lyndon as well is that it's very difficult to discuss such a visual film just by talking about it here. It's really not something we can properly communicate how stunningly beautiful the film is. Uh, I think it's, I think it's hard to describe, uh, verbally what's, what's in the film. And I think that's, I think that's what Kubrick actually got about, uh, directing films from books is that that you get some extra information with visuals that uh, that words don't really imply. So he was able to create mm-hmm. bigger-than-life images that way. Well, I think that's the thing is that what I was tapping into with the specific framing and you know the zooms of specific shots earlier, as I was mentioning as well, is that Berlin is not just a pretty film. Every shot has very much so a purpose, you know, and it communicates something emotionally through the action of the camera if you want to know what good cinematography looks like look at something like barry linden which is very you know intentional in what it's communicating the camera speaks as much as the words do like if you if you had like a a book of films to study if you're going to do cinematography you might put this in there I, yeah, I absolutely would, because like I said, some of these shots, you know, they're very intentional and communicative. When the camera moves, it moves with purpose, and it says something. It is a voice, you know, and you don't necessarily get that from every uh, director, not even some of the best, you know. But a purposeful and vocal camera is uh, pertinent if you really want to use the medium to its fullest extent. And there's a lot of word of like a, a Kubrick's influences and what he did that influenced other directors. Uh, you just watched a film that uh, that would count, right? Yeah, um, The Duelists was one I just got finished watching earlier this morning uh, from Ridley Scott, Ridley Scott's debut future. And it's very clear that uh, Scott was influenced by Barry Lyndon specifically to make the film. But you can also see how Scott is not nearly as good a director as uh, Kubrick is through the film. Even in his latest films, I'd argue, you know, like I love stuff like Alien and Blade Runner, but I don't know if they're uh, direction-wise as good as Kubrick's stuff is. Yeah, I feel like I feel like I could read the influences on stuff like Prometheus, with the, you know, Prometheus becoming more painterly and more uh, prone to wide shots and environmental shots. But there's there's some stuff throughout all of Ridley Scott's stuff. Uh, you could tell that he's fascinated by this, like a. Uh, 
Also, Scorsese counts this as one of his favorite films, his favorite Kubrick, certainly. Yeah, I've seen that somewhere. And I think this is um, a Kubrick film that's definitely getting a lot more attention. For a long time, it was not. And I think kind of the more recent release of Criterion's you know, copy of Barry Lyndon has brought a lot more attention to it. Certainly brought its, uh, you know, my attention to it. And, you know, it's becoming quickly just as, if not more, celebrated than some of Kubrick's other great films. You know, I think a lot of people still want to put stuff like The Shining at the top of their no. Kubrick list. <laughs> But it's it's definitely not. If anything, you know, stuff like Barry Lyndon, Doctor Strange Love, two thousand one, they all kind of deserve that top spot there. And I got a really big spot for Paths of Glory now as well, which is fantastic. I think objectively, you could look at you know, uh, if I looked at like what I like, of course, I'd have like Clockwork Orange up there. But then if I look at like what's perfectly done and made, you know, there's a, such a strong argument for Barry Lyndon. Mm-hmm. I think uh, that's the thing as well. Is that Clockwork Orange is such a starter film for Kubrick as yeah. well. That's you know you you kind of watch that in the same kind of time period when you're in your rebellious phase and you get that sense from it, but you don't really see a lot of the more genius elements of Kubrick in it as specifically as you do like something like Barry Lyndon and 2001. Both of those films are very technically perfect. Well, I asked you a kind of difficult question before we began that. Um if I saw a, a painting that is perfectly beautiful and it doesn't move me, is the painting still perfect? Right, and that's such a uh, a tough thing because I think so much of that you have to consider is intent. If you're not moved by the painting, I think the first question you have to ask yourself is, am I supposed to be? Right. You know, because part of the art's uh, intention can be to specifically make you apathetic. And I think that's where yeah. I came across with Barry Lyndon that it could be a perfect movie without making me feel. Mm-hmm. I, and I think that's the idea there is that the shots I think are beautiful, and you you search for some emotional core behind them, you know, something that motivates them. But the the cinematography and the tone of the film and everything going on, the text specifically tells you not to care about right. what's going on. Don't don't be emotionally invested. That's not what this is. And I think that's an interesting, not only a, a juxtaposition, but a kind of revealing there of uh, art. You know, and you can look at it, you know, how much you're supposed to look into, what you're supposed to take away from it. Barry Lyndon says, you know, not everything is supposed to be uh, moving, so to speak. I'd like to think that as far as, uh, <laughs> you know, everything should be going against Barry Lyndon, that it's a three-hour war film about, a guy who goes into like British service, then Prussian service, then you know it's all a uh, pretty highfalutin, high art looking stuff. But then, uh, you know, it's kind of a lowbrow, rogue, roguish character. Everything yeah. about it is atypical to its form. Well, that's the thing is that it's on the surface it looks like it's a very kind of stuffy aristocratic film. It's going to be about rich people problems or whatever's going on but it's much so more so an interesting look at a journey is what it is it's barry going through you know these various scenarios he starts off poor and penniless and he rises all the way up and he has to deal with all those issues there and you know it's not a you know rags to riches kind of story and that you're cheering for him so much so as you're watching how this all unfolds and how he kind of gets there i believe the original story was called the luck of Barry Lyndon or something like that. Yeah, that's right. And that's that's very much so kind of the case here is that he just lucks his way into things. It's not 
he's particularly smart or clever or, you know, coy or anything like that. He just happens upon opportunities and stumbles his way to the top. I think that covers it for this week. Yeah, I think uh, that's um, all we basically have to say. If you haven't seen Barry Lyndon yet, you know, do definitely check it out. Get yourself a Criterion copy or just uh, check it out on Amazon. All right, folks. Hope you enjoyed the show. Check back next week for our Die Hard Christmas special. But for now, we must leave you with Vivaldi.